We left off with David in Philistine territory, having just recovered his family and stuff. A messenger arrives from Mount Gilboa, the battlefront, with news for David. Saul and Jonathan are dead. When David asks how he knows this, the young Amalekite says, I finished him off. He was mortally wounded and begged me to end it, so I did. Here's some of his stuff, and he pulls out trinkets off Saul's body. He was probably expecting the anointed king-in-waiting to give him a reward. How did you dare raise your hand against God's anointed? And the man got the death penalty on the spot. David, the musician, then writes a song, How the Mighty Are Fallen, lamenting both Saul and Jonathan. You can understand his buddy Jonathan, but murderous Saul? You'd have thought he composed a celebration song for Saul. Maybe, ding dong, the wretch is dead. He makes Israel learn the song and sing it regularly. You know, like, happy birthday to you or their national anthem. With Saul dead, David is made king over the tribe of Judah. Saul's surviving son, Ishbosheth, try saying that fast five times, becomes king over the rest of the tribes, thanks to one of Saul's generals, Abner. In chapter 3, Ishbosheth is assassinated in his bed. The two men bring his head to David. They too think they'll get a reward. They really don't know David, do they? I imagine them pulling the head out of the basket going, Hey David, you're now head of the whole country. Get it? They were immediately terminated. David was made king in Judah at age 30. Now at age 37, he is king of the whole nation. One of his first actions was to find a permanent capital. Jerusalem was perfect. It was called Jabesh because it was occupied by the Jebusites. They thought the place was impenetrable. In fact, they taunted David's general Joab from the wall. The blind and lame could defend this place. David instructed Joab, go up the water tunnel. And that's what they do, and they take the city. David promptly makes Jebus, Jerusalem, his capital. We're told he then began to build a lavish palace. We're also told he multiplied wives and concubines. One of these wives was Abigail, the woman who stopped him in his rash vow from murdering Nabal. Nabal died a few days after the incident with David. With his palace built, David decided, I need to bring the ark to Jerusalem. So David arranged for a massive celebration, a parade. Parades need floats. So David built a special cart, a float, to haul the ark. The book of 1 Chronicles adds color commentary on just how amazing this parade was. On their way back to Jerusalem, the cart hit a very large pothole, and the ark started to spill off the cart. One of David's prized men, Uzzah, grabbed it, of course, to keep it from falling, and God immediately struck him dead for touching the ark. You'll remember how the ark was supposed to be carried, on poles, by Levites, but David thought a float would be a better idea. David was deeply upset, perhaps with himself, perhaps with God, maybe a little of both. The parade paused and David left the ark right where it was. A while passed for David to calm down. This time he carried it God's way. You'll read about David's actions as the ark entered Jerusalem. He was out among the common citizens, carrying on, undignified, leaping and dancing and singing before the ark representing the God of Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 7 is another one of those double circle earmark pages of scripture. We're going to wait with that one and come back to it in our next word picture. In chapters 8 through 10, David gets extremely powerful. 
he beats back the Philistines, mops up on Moab and Edom, and defeats the eastern kings all the way to the Euphrates. Then this statement is made about David. He reigned over all Israel, and he was fair to everyone. Wow, that's quite a king. It also tells us he reached out to Saul's family, specifically to Jonathan's family. He finds out about Mephibosheth, one of Jonathan's sons. Mephibosheth apparently was a paraplegic. David brought him to Jerusalem. He adopted him as his son, and Mephibosheth ate at his table. When we get to the end of chapter 10, David is one powerful ruler. Then comes the crash. David goes Achan. Remember Achan in Jericho? Achan saw, coveted, took, and hid. That's what David does. At a time when kings go out to battle, David stayed back in Jerusalem. One day after a nap, he went up on the palace roof. Of course, the king gets the highest vista in town. David's vista overlooked the rooftops of the houses below. One afternoon, he looked down on those rooftops and spotted a beautiful woman, the wife of one of his main warriors, Uriah the Hittite. She was bathing on the roof, which was fairly a common practice. David commits a despicable act. He summons her to the palace. He sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. We're not told if he took her or this was mutual, but the character of her husband Uriah would suggest this was a David problem. When David hears Bathsheba is pregnant, he wants to hide it, so he brings Uriah home from the front. He wines and dines him and sends him home for a little R&R, but we're told Uriah would have none of it. That night, he sleeps on the steps of the palace. He won't go home to his wife. David hears the next morning he slept outside the palace, calls him back and says, What's up with you? Why didn't you go home to your wife? Uriah's reply, While the men of Israel are out there fighting, living in tents, I'm going to go home to Bathsheba? You've got to be kidding me. Wow, what a man. David keeps him for another night and liquors him up even more. He sleeps outside the palace. He refuses to go home. David sends him back to the front, carrying his own death orders. David instructs Joab to put him in the harshest fighting and then withdraw, leaving him exposed. That's exactly what Joab does, and he sends a message back to David. Uriah the Hittite is dead. David takes the widow Bathsheba on his wife. She's already showing. Two trimesters later, she gives birth. Having saw, coveted, and took, David now hides. That is until the prophet Nathan comes to him with a little story, a parable about a poor man with a sheep. I'll let you read it for yourself. It is a dandy. He sneaks in on David's blind side and nails him to the wall. You're the man. Now if this had been Saul, Nathan would have gotten a spear through his chest. But not with David. David owns it. You'll read about it in one of David's songs he writes and publishes for all people at all times to read and it's Psalm 51 in your Bible. Create in me, O God, a clean heart. Nathan tells David, The gracious, loving God of Israel forgives you, David. But the consequences, the dominoes that will fall, will be very difficult. One by one, those dominoes fall in David's family and the nation of Israel. The baby he and Bathsheba have dies. But even here, God's grace radiates through. God tells David, I'm going to give you another son with Bathsheba. You'll call him Jedidiah, loved by God. He's also known in scripture as Solomon. David was gross, but God was gracious. 
The dominoes then keep falling in David's family. David's oldest son, Amnon, violates David's daughter, Tamar. That's Amnon's half-sister. Remember, David multiplied wives and concubines. Tamar's brother, Absalom, waits for David to punish his oldest son, Amnon. David gets angry and wrings his hands, but then sits on them and doesn't discipline Amnon. After two years of brewing over what Amnon's done to his sister, Absalom has Amnon murdered. Then Absalom flees away to Geshur and hides there for three years. You'll read about how General Joab finally convinces David to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. It's been five years since Absalom's sister Tamar has been violated. But when Absalom gets back to Jerusalem, there's not reconciliation. He's told he may never see King David's face again. Absalom waits two more years in isolation, then demands to see the king, his father. He burns down Joab's field to get his attention. Finally, after seven years of being alienated from his dad, Absalom gets to see his father again at the palace. We're only told he went in and the king kissed him. Whatever happened in that room, it was too little and too late. For when Absalom left David's palace, he was committed to overthrow David as king. He plans a coup and then executes it perfectly. David flees Jerusalem with some of his men. He's a fugitive again. As he's rushing out of town, one of Saul's distant relatives, Shimei, starts throwing insults and rocks at David. One of David's men wants to go cut off Shimei's head. But David, unlike Saul, is not the spear-throwing type. He leaves it in God's hands. The story deteriorates. When Absalom enters Jerusalem, he goes up on the rooftop of the palace and violates David's concubines in public view to shame his father and make reconciliation impossible. He then assembles the troops of Israel to go after his father and end him. As David's men and Absalom's army clash, David begs Joab, please be merciful to Absalom, my son. You'll read about Absalom with his long flowing hair and how his hair gets caught in a tree branch as he rides under it on his donkey. Hanging there, Joab executes him. When David hears that his son is dead, he wails in grief. It's really pitiful. A heartbroken father. With the coup beaten back, David is restored as king. Sort of restored. A lot of the shine is rubbed off his honor. The rest of 1 Samuel describes a time where famine hits the land. David starts to get old and is almost killed in battle by a Philistine. Joab retires him from the military permanently. His health begins to deteriorate, and maybe his mind a little too. In chapter 24, he calls Joab in and orders a census be taken of the fighting men in Israel. Joab urges him to change his mind. You get the sense that David was starting to trust in his own numbers instead of the Lord his God. The census took nine months. And when it was over, David's heart was deeply troubled. He knew he had sinned by giving this order. A prophet comes to David and says, I have a word from God. You have three choices, three years of famine in the land, three months of running from your enemies, or three days of plague on the people of Israel. A young David would have taken the three months on the run. I mean, it was a him problem. But David chose the latter, three days of plague on Israel. Before David cried out to stop it, 70,000 Israelites had died. The text doesn't tell us what the plague was, but how it spread is clear. It was moving like a wave. We're told where it stopped, at the threshing floor of Aruna. 
that will become a very important place. And that threshing floor of Aruna will become the place Solomon builds the temple. The end of David's life is listed in the first two chapters of our next book, First Kings. He was an old, tired man. He couldn't keep warm, so they got him a hot water bottle, a young woman to lie in his arms. It makes it clear there was nothing creepy about their behavior. Like many leaders, David was a lame duck. He waited too long to hand the kingdom over to his successor. Solomon was to be the king, but David's son Adonijah had another idea, so he arranges his own coup. When David hears about it, he immediately steps down and anoints Solomon king. All of Israel, except Adonijah and his bunch, celebrate Solomon, Israel's third king. David has a few last words for Israel and for Solomon. Some of those words are to love and obey God. Others aren't quite so noble. In fact, the last words recorded out of David's mouth in 1 King is him putting a hit out on Shimei, the rock-throwing, insulting relative of Saul, who pelted him with insults when Absalom chased him out of Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but that's not the way I want my story to end. Now you've heard David's story. However, we skipped one critical event, 2 Samuel chapter 7. In that chapter, God made a covenant with David, a covenant as important as the one God made with Eve, Noah, and Abraham. We will learn about that covenant, as well as the possible answer to the question, just what was it that made David a man after God's own heart, in our next word picture.